Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Christocentric, based out of our study on the book of Philippians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we honor your word as holy and inspired. Lord, we also acknowledge that I am not holy and inspired. So we ask that you would anoint me, God, anoint my lips as we attempt to examine your word. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, there are some in this house who desperately need encouragement. Come, Lord, encourage through the teaching of your word. There are some of us in this house who need to come to a place of repentance. Through your kindness, God, through the kind teaching of your word, bring us to a place of repentance. We need you in our land, God. We need you in our families. We need you in this church. You've got to be in our midst, God. We've got to have you. We've got to have you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. There is a um, rather strange passage of Scripture um, in Genesis 15 that I want to just glance at before we go to Philippians. In Genesis 15, we find Abraham in the text, still Abram, um, in conversation with God about Sarah's inability to conceive. In Genesis 12, Abraham is promised that he will be made into a great nation and that his and his descendants would inherit the land. But in, you know the story. In Genesis 15, we're still early in Genesis. That promise has not yet come to pass. And Abraham lives in that uncomfortable place of trying to believe God for a promise, but not seeing any outward evidence that the thing's going to come to pass. And so... God reaffirms his word again, and Abraham asks for a sign, a confirmation of the fulfillment of the word. He says, how can I know that I will be a great nation and my offspring will possess the land? And the Lord responds in verse 9 and says this, Genesis 15 verse 9, bring me a heifer three years old, a a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half laid each half over against the other. He did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And here the scene gets a little strange for us. Abraham, a man in the, in the desert wilderness, cuts a, a heifer, a goat, a ram in, in half, like literally cut them in half. And it's a bloody mess. There's blood everywhere. And Abraham sits and waits for the Lord to move. And as he's waiting late into the afternoon, there are these kind of vultures that are coming down, trying to eat from this bloody, gory mess that Abraham has um, prepared. And Abraham, late into the afternoon, is scaring the birds away, keeping the birds away. Verse 12 says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So again, late into the afternoon, there's a a bloody massacre mess of a sacrifice and he is chasing vultures away. 
into the night and he falls asleep. The scripture says a great and dreadful darkness come upon him. This is a strange scene for us. God speaks to Abraham in verse 13 during this deep sleep and says that his children for 400 years will be held captive in a forward land, but will afterwards inherit the promised region. And the readers left to ask the question, is Abraham having a vision? Is he in a deep sleep? Is God speaking to him in the sleep? It's definitely some kind of prophetic experience. Verse 17 says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces, between the animal pieces. Now there's dead livestock, literally cut in half, laying on the ground, touching each other. And Abraham sees a torch and a smoking pot passing between the bodies. Now that doesn't translate perfectly well in our culture, but it's very common in ancient Eastern cultures what's going on here. This was a covenantal ceremony. When two people or two people groups came into a covenant with one another, they would cut an animal in half, cut the animal straight down the middle. And they both parties of the covenant would walk between the animal, walk between it. And as they walked between the cut animal, they walked between that blood. They were declaring, may the same thing happen to me if I do not uphold my end of this covenant. If I don't fulfill my covenantal responsibilities, may I also be torn in half, torn to pieces. They were saying, with all of my life, I will uphold this vow. If not, let me be torn to pieces. Now, interpreters differ here as to whether the pot passing through the pieces was a part of the dream or if Abraham had woken up and literally seen a pot and and a torch passing between the pieces. Either way, it makes no difference. The point is this, that this is a lopsided agreement. That in ancient Eastern cultures, two parties passed through the torn animal. Two parties made a commitment towards one another. But Abraham does not pass through that bloody animal. God alone passes through the the bloody animal. The, the, The... The smoking pot and the torch represent the presence of God. And God alone carries responsibility in this covenant. God says, I will fulfill my word. I will cause my promise to you to come to pass. You can be sure, absolutely and totally sure in life or in death. I will absolutely, totally fulfill my covenant towards you. And and this has nothing to do with you, Abram. There's nothing you do in this covenant to cause this to come to pass. It's all on me. I bear the full weight of this responsibility. The Lord alone passes through. This is a lopsided agreement in which God says, I will do it. I alone. Again, a covenantal ceremony between two parties where only one party bears responsibility. The Lord is saying two things. First, The word I spoke to you, Abram, concerning your children and their inheritance will surely come to pass. I make a covenantal promise to you that I will fulfill my vow. Trust my word, Abram. Second, this is my responsibility. God is saying to Abram, you just put your faith in my willingness and ability to fulfill my covenant. 
Abram, all you have to do is trust that I am able to cause my word to come to pass and I will do it. All that matters for you is faith in this moment. Now, that's a passage that we can meditate on for weeks and we probably should. There are things there that we would do well to settle in our hearts. But I just wanted to draw your attention to this emphasis in Abraham's moment of great disorientation. His heart is unsteady. Again, God has promised things that he's not yet seen. God puts Abraham into a deep sleep and says to him through this covenantal ceremony, you just trust me. You just put your faith in my willingness and ability to fulfill what I've promised. The fulfillment of my word is my responsibility. Our passage this morning in Philippians 1 is vastly different in context. Totally different setting. But it's similar in emphasis. God will complete what he has set out to complete. Paul will tell the Philippian church in chapter 1, When I am anxious about your future, when my mind is flooded with fear of all the things that could go wrong with you and in you, I settle my heart in this truth that God is faithful to finish the good work which he has started. God started the work, God sustains the work, and God will finish the work. This is God's work in you, and God has covenanted that he will fulfill that work. Paul says, I'm anxious, I'm nervous, but I settle myself because what God starts, God finishes. He will do it. Now let's read our text from Philippians chapter 1. Last week we focused on verse Five. This week we're going to focus on verse 6. And so we'll read primarily the same verses, but our emphasis will lie on a different verse. Paul says, starting in verse 3, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I told you last week that this week we'd spend a little more time looking at the historical context of this moment. And so first, I want to draw your attention to the truth that Paul is in prison here. Again, commentators, scholars argue about whether he's um, in Rome or Ephesus. Most land on one of those two. Um, I, th- I think most agree that he's in, a, in prison in Rome. And Paul writes to the Philippian church. And in the letter, he brings this profound intimacy and love for this church. When you study the letter long enough, you realize that Paul has a special relationship with the Philippian church. He loves them in a different way. There is a parental anxiety and concern that Paul carries for this church. I got my first cell phone at 15, 16. It was this prepaid block looking thing. You know what I'm saying? little brick. It didn't have any internet, you know, no social media. It just had that snake game. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know anything about 
Call of Duty or Madden, you know, these video games that people play, but I will kick your butt in that snake game. You challenge me to that snake game, I will slaughter you. Meet me in the snake game ring. That's serious. Serious. My parents were lenient. I was the last. You know, when you're the last of four, your parents, the, the rules start to slack. And so I didn't have much of a, uh, I didn't have much of a curfew or things like that. But every time my mom heard the ambulance, she always called my little block cell phone. And, and I knew she would say, uh, just heard the ambulance. You'll make sure you're okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. It was like a weekly occurrence. There is a concern and anxiety that parents carry. It's that kind of concern and anxiety that Paul's expressing. He's absent. He's in prison. And by consequence, totally out of control. You know when your kids go off to college and you're a little bit like you're not in control anymore? Like grounding doesn't quite work? Some of y'all are like, that's why I still pay the cell phone bill. As long as I'm paying the bill, the grounding still works. Um, but there, there's, a, there's an uncomfortability thing that happens when your kids step out of the house and you are no longer in control. You can't grab every situation. You can't protect them all the time, especially when there's some distance created, right? You can't, they get in a car wreck, you can't just run there and show up right away. You have to trust God in a different way when there's space and distance created and you're out of control of their lives. And Paul here is miles away from the Philippian church and Paul is in prison. I don't know, I'm going to teach you something right now. When you're in prison, you actually can't run when there's an issue. You're not allowed to leave, okay? Obey the law because you can't leave. He can't show up to intervene when there's a fight in the church. He can't be there to spur them on when they feel like quitting. There is nothing he can do in his own energy to ensure that this church that he loves with all his heart will succeed. There's nothing he can do. He's given all of his life to see them really know Jesus. Risked his life. Raised people up. But he's driven from the city. Now in Thessalonians 2.2, which Paul goes to Thessalonians right after Philippi, um, he says this, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul says, in Philippi, I suffered and was shamefully treated, and I had to have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. In that city, I was treated shamefully and I needed boldness to continue to preach the gospel. Much conflict he suffered was treated shamefully. Now, for a little context, I know we're like in a little bit of teacher mode, but you can do this. You have a brain on your shoulders right here and it works, okay? I promise you, it works. If it doesn't, get the snake game out and do what you need to do, okay? In Acts 16, Paul tries to go into Asia to preach the gospel, but the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit hindered him. So he sought guidance from the Holy Spirit. He prayed, something we should maybe learn from. And he had a dream that a Macedonian man was calling him to come and help. Now, Philippi is the capital of Macedonia. It's named after Philip of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's father, who was this great military conqueror. Just a hundred years before Paul... um, You remember Mark Antony and Octavian had defeated Brutus and Cassius right after the assassination of Julius Caesar. And this battle had the most soldiers involved in a single battle in Roman history up to this point. Hundreds of thousands of men fought in Philippi. And at the victory um, of Octavian and Mark Antony, the city of Philippi 
again located in modern day Greece, became a Roman colony and, and many of the soldiers stayed and they settled down in that city. Now Philippi became a large, a city largely influenced by military presence and they were also a city who had a unique, um, citizenship standing with Rome. They operated as if they were in the, in the, in the city of Rome themselves when they weren't. They were Far away, So there was this highly political city infused with the culture of Greece and Rome. It was infused with that kind of atmosphere. So Paul marches his way to Philippi. And at the gates, he meets some Jewish women who are outside worshiping. Lydia from Thyatira is a seller of purple goods that we learn about in Scripture. And some of them give their lives to Jesus. And Lydia allows Paul and his team to stay in her house as they continue to preach. Now you remember the story. Paul began to minister in the city, and there was a slave girl, the scriptures say, who was demonically possessed. And a slave girl is following Paul around, and she's shouting, um, these men are from God, and they, they will lead you to Messiah. They will lead you to salvation. Assumably, she is mocking Paul um, and his team. The scripture also tells us that this woman, by this demonic spirit, was able to um, tell people's future. And so she was a slave. She was owned by a couple who made money because she worked as a fortune teller. Well, she gets on Paul's nerves after a while. And Paul turns around and rebukes her in the name of Jesus. And the demonic spirit leaves this young girl the catches that she can no longer tell the future. And so her owners are frustrated. And so they incite a riot, a great riot in the city of Philippi. And they bring Paul... And they bring Silas before the leaders of the city and they accuse them of advocating for customs that were not permissible for Romans. Essentially, they're saying they're bringing a cultural religion that we should not partake in. And Paul and Silas were beaten with rods. Backs bloody, torn up. They were put in stocks in prison. Chained to a wall. Blood still dripping from their backs. And late into the night, they, they sing hymns to God. Sing hymns, worship, and pray. Again, dried blood, open wounds, tired, frustrated. They continue to pray, continue to worship. Late into the night, a great earthquake takes place. Their bonds supernaturally are bust from their feet, bust from their hands. They're set free. And the jailer goes to fall on his sword because a Roman guard who allows um, those who are supposed to be incarcerated to escape will be murdered. So the jailer figures he'll just do the job himself. He's ready to kill himself rather than to suffer this shame. But Paul and Silas and the other prisoners didn't run. They stayed put. And Paul says to the jailer, no, stop. We haven't run. And the jailer says, um, recognizing that this was God moving, that as they prayed and worshiped, God supernaturally caused an earthquake to bust them out of their chains. The the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? The jailer and his whole family get saved and they um, are baptized. And the scripture says that Paul the next day and Silas were run out of the city. So their stay in Philippi was brief. They saw some Jewish women get saved. They saw some others get saved, we'll learn in the scriptures. And they saw this entire family from um, this jailer come to know Jesus. But they were beaten severely. The scripture says that the jailer and his family cleaned their wounds as they came into their house. 
They were driven from that city the next morning, bruised, beaten, tired, but they hadn't quit. And behind them, they left a church, a body of new believers living in a hostile region. Now Paul's in prison again, and those saints at Philippi have sent him financial help to support him in his imprisonment. And here we Paul find saying, we find Paul saying, I long for you with all the affection of Christ. I'm concerned for you. I'm praying that you learn to grow in love towards one another and pursue real knowledge and real discernment. But this church exists in the city where he tells us in First Thessalonians that he suffered and was treated shamefully. His brain is attacked with these questions. Do they suffer like he suffered? Are they persecuted? Are they beaten, bruised, and tired? Are they bitter? Are some tempted to give up hope? Is the enemy whispering in this church's ear, why not just quit? Why not just give up? Why not just throw in the towel? It's not worth risking the safety of your family. It's not worth risking your reputation. Why not just quit? Paul's sure that they hear that tempter whispering in their ear, just give up, just stop. Paul said, it took great boldness for me to keep preaching in the face of this turmoil. And Paul tells us that there, we know from the letter that there is some bickering going on in the church. Philippians 4, verse 2 through 3, Paul says to two women in the church, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul is asking leaders in the church to help these two women come to settle their dispute. Both of them, Paul says, helped me to preach the gospel to this city, and now they are bickering. Now they are bitter. Now they are harboring unforgiveness. So what we have is a church that will likely face persecution. They will suffer. They will sacrifice their reputation. Their families may be in physical um, danger. And now they are bickering amongst one another. That sounds like a good, perfect storm to quit on church. Tired, persecuted. Paul's met with the question, will they walk away? Will they quit? Will Satan succeed in causing his partners in the gospel to throw in the towel? And in this moment of extreme concern, the kind of concern that one only feels when someone he deeply loves is endangered. There's a certain kind of concern that you feel when your kids are in danger. There's a different level of anxiety and fear that you experience when your children are in danger. That kind of concern, Paul settles his anxiety, he settles his disorientation, and he finds his reprieve, his rest in this truth. God began this work, and God will finish this work. God says to Abraham, I will fulfill my promise. And here Paul says, God will do it. God did not save you, fill you with his spirit, draw you to himself, call you a son and a daughter, make you an heir to a great inheritance, seat you in heavenly places, wash you of your filth, of your guilt, and of your shame. God did not send His Holy Spirit to teach you and convict you. He didn't do all that just to quit now. 
Paul says, when I think about that church and I experience that great concern, I take a deep breath and I breathe. And I remember that God started the work and he's faithful to complete the work that he started in you. Now, I want to give you peace, a piece of information that may feel slightly offensive, but is actually fairly helpful. I am gifted, very gifted at offensive, so forgive me. Part of having peace when you consider your spiritual progress and your future is remembering this truth. When you come to Christ, you admit that you do not possess in you the ability to live pure. When you come to Christ, you admit, you confess that you cannot live holy. You cannot have abundant life. In short, coming to Jesus is admitting your own lostness and inability to make something of your life. We are like fish floundering on the shore, trying to sort through the muddiness of life and just hoping that God will make something of it. Maybe it means something, but we have no real direction, no real guidance, no real sense of purpose and calling. And we have this tendency to just keep sinning and we want to stop, but we can't stop. We have no ability in ourselves to fix that. We are broken and we can't fix it. When you come to Jesus, you confess, I'm broke and I can't do anything about it. You're going to have to fix this. That's part of coming to Jesus. Coming to Christ is admitting that you need a shepherd. You are not your own shepherd. You cannot in and of yourself find fulfillment, find purpose, find goodness and beauty. And you cannot live holy without his power and leadership. Living life in our own strength is at best messy, very messy. So when you came to him for salvation... You brought to him your inability to lead yourself. And in your inability to lead yourself, you got out of the driver's seat and you crawl your sorry behind into the passenger seat, buckle up and give him the wheel. And as you crawl your sorry behind into the passenger seat, you have now surrendered the steering of your life to the one sitting behind the steering wheel. That's good news because he actually knows how to drive a car, okay? You don't. That's good news because he knows where he's going. You don't. Now, at the risk of being a little more offensive, let me say it to you another way. When I grew up, I rode the school bus. And there were some rude kids on my school bus, very rude little heathens. And if you didn't have name brand shoes and you happened to be rocking the Walmart special, they would call your shoes Bobo Shoes. And they cannot be tricked. Sometimes Walmart makes these shoes that look like Jordans, but they're not Jordans. And these kids could smell a fake from a mile away. Those shoes are from Walmart. Bobo shoes, they would say to me. And we would go home to our mom. We weren't, we weren't loaded in money, um, but my parents worked hard to make sure we were well taken care of. And we would say to our mom, we cannot have Bobo shoes. Bobo shoes, that was highly derogatory term, not politically correct, and I was triggered every time they said it. Bobo shoes. We need Nike, we would say to mom. And that is a hashtag third world prop. First world prop, not third world, first world. 
Now, also, if someone is not particularly bright, a little slow, they were a bobo. Growing up in our house, when we made bad decisions, my mom uh, would say something, and this was a term of endearment. She would say something like, you moron? You know, like when you trip over your shoes, you didn't tie your shoes and you trip, well, you moron. And that was a term of endearment that acknowledged your stupidity. And so in our house, I say to my kids from time to time, well, you bobo, Um, particularly when they don't put their top on their cup and they spill it. Or they, for the thousandth time, don't flush the toilet, man. Why don't girls flush the toilet? Can we work on that? Say, Bobo, flush the toilet. The other day, I tripped over our doggy gate, which is from hell, by the way. I tripped over that doggy gate, and my five-year-old says to me, What are you doing, Bobo? (laughs) And so, When Jesus says that he is the shepherd and we are the sheep, that is not a flattering metaphor, not a flattering analogy. Sheep are moronic. Sheep are bobos. Okay? When you come to Christ, you admit that you are bobo. You cannot, in and of yourself, figure this out. You're slow. Touch your neighbor and say, Boba. It's okay. Sheep are slow upstairs. Sheep do not know where they are going. They have no idea where they're going or why they're going there. Sheep rely totally and fully on the wisdom of the shepherd, the vision of the shepherd, the protection of the shepherd, the provision of the shepherd. Sheep should not be left to fend for themselves because sheep are bobo. And the shepherd is fully aware of this. He does not expect the sheep to have perfect foresight. He does not expect the sheep to be perfectly put together. He understands that sheep are slow. And you coming to Christ is a free admission that you have no idea where you're going without him. You cannot see clearly. You are prone to seasons of confusion. We are prone to disorientation, to not being quite sure what's going on in our lives or why it's happening. Our hearts are deceptive, Jeremiah tells us. Wicked, who can know it? You can't. The shepherd does. And Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. And that's how this will work. You don't have to have everything figured out, Bobo. You just listen to the voice of the shepherd. That's the way it works. He knows where you're going. Holiness is a product of intimacy. It's a product of hearing the shepherd's call. It's not necessarily a product of grinding your teeth and trying hard, although at times there's, you need to do that. It's mostly walking in intimacy with the shepherd. And when the shepherd calls, you shift. And when the shepherd nudges you, you react. You live in the word of God because we know that this is filled with the voice of the shepherd. And as I read, I hear the shepherd's call to be gracious and to be kind. And I'm growing in holiness as the shepherd leads me through his voice. And there are times where I'm standing in a grocery store or in a bank line and I begin to talk to someone because I feel like the shepherd is nudging me to do so. I don't know why I'm talking to you. I just know that the shepherd seems to be 
prodding me to. It's the Christian life is intended to be lived as Bobos listen to the voice of the shepherd. You follow the voice of the shepherd. You coming to Christ is an admission that you cannot protect and provide for yourself. You cast your provision on the shepherd. Again, we pray that every time we tithe. We, as we tithe and give and bring our offerings, we acknowledge that we are not our own provision. The shepherd is. Breathe, man. Breathe. These truths are supposed to allow you to have a spiritual rest. The yoke is easy. The burden is light because we are yoked to a shepherd who knows, sees, and is in control. Now, much of the emphasis of this text is about sanctification or the process of becoming more like Jesus, growing in holiness. The bad news and wonderful news all at the same time is this. You cannot make yourself more holy. You cannot in and of yourself make yourself pure. Your sanctification process is led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, you surrendering to the Holy Spirit does require an act of your will, which will make you more holy. But it it is initiated and led by the Holy Ghost. So to follow the analogy well, I do think you can resist the process of being led by the shepherd. I think you can try to run from him like little dumb sheep do. They try to scatter and run from the shepherd, unsure of where they're going. You can plug your fingers in your ears and pretend to not hear God's voice and choose to just keep living in sin and rebellion. But when sheep resist and run, the shepherd follows behind and grabs them. And disciplines them. You can rest in the fact that although we have tendencies to go astray. You remember that old song, my heart is prone to wonder. It is. If you're not willing to admit that, you need to come to a real place of honesty. Our hearts are prone to wonder. But the shepherd, it's his responsibility and his commitment and his covenant to keep my heart and my soul and my spirit in fellowship with him. God says, I know that you are prone to wonder. Take a deep breath. I'm not going to leave you. In seasons where you struggle and you make dumb decisions, I will follow close behind you, smacking you with my little stick. When you make bad decisions, I will from time to time allow you to meet the consequences of those bad decisions because I'm trying to teach you something, not because I've abandoned you. A good father, when their kid makes a poor decision, gets a, you know, when an 18-year-old gets a credit card and runs that thing up, you know what a good dad does? He says, get a job and pay it off. Not let me just pay it off for you. He says, learn the lesson. Learn the lesson. So sometimes as sheep, we do dumb things. And God allows us to experience the consequences, but you have not been abandoned nor forsaken. He has not quit on you just because you're experiencing the consequences of your bad decisions. He might be disciplining you like a good father does. Now, it's important to not skim over this passage and read it with the cosmic perspective. 
Jesus is faithful to complete the cosmic work which he has begun. He will restore the new heavens and the new earth. He will make all things right. There's a coming day when his feet will touch the Mount of Olives and all things will be brought to rightness again. That is God's cosmic work, but this scripture is not about God's cosmic work. This scripture says that God is faithful and just to complete the work in you. That there is a work that God is accomplishing within your heart, within your chest. Touch your ribcage. God is doing something in there. God has a little hammer and a little chisel and God has tools on his belt and he is not on lunch break. He is working today in you. Yes, you have problems. Yes, you are messy. Yes, you are slow to understand. You're sheep. But he is committed, he has covenanted himself to see you through to the finish. There's a work in you. God shows up to work on time. Hammer in his hand. He's doing something. Now Paul, on occasion in his epistles, refers to this process, this sanctification of process, um, and reminds the believers that God has committed himself to see them through to the end. 1 Corinthians 1, 7-9 says this, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, Paul just said that Jesus Christ will sustain you till the end. Now, to the day of Jesus was in both of our texts, this text and our text today. He's faithful to complete the good work until the day of Jesus. That means the last day, the very last day of creation, until the day of renewal when all things are new. You will make it until the very last day because God is faithful to sustain you and to work in you until that day. Wrap up quickly. God was teaching Abraham to trust in his ability and willingness to accomplish and complete his work. We meet our anxieties about tomorrow, our anxieties about our progress or seemingly lack of progress with this truth. God has begun a work in me. He will still be working tomorrow. And on the last day, the work will be complete. I do not have everything together today. That's okay. We rest in the tension of the process. You're in process. The process is not complete. And it will not be complete until the last day. God, according to verse 6, is the finishing kind of God. He is the kind of God who finishes. Paul's confident that he will bring that work to completion. Worship team, if you guys want to go ahead and come. Now, from a doctrinal perspective, the idea that we just talked about is often referred to as perseverance of the saints, that the saints will persevere. That is the P to the acrostic tulip that builds the system for Calvinism. We are not Calvinists. When I say we, I mean me or our leadership. We are not Calvinists. Um, Yet we do acknowledge that our salvation is not, we're not in and out. It's not like every time you make a bad decision, you fall out of salvation. We acknowledge that our salvation is covenanted to us by God and that God will see us through. So I am a firm believer in the perseverance of the saints, not because the saints are great, but because God is faithful. I believe the saints are a little slow up here. But I believe that God is faithful. 
Now, you could say to me, Caleb, did you just teach us once saved, always saved? And I would say, yes and no. Yes and not quite. John tells us that many who are among us have gone out from us because they were never really of us. First, John says that there are some who partake in the church. They seem to be a part of the church and they leave the faith. But they leave the faith because they never really knew Jesus anyway. They never surrendered their lives. They never allowed Jesus to be in the driver's seat. They just played the part for a while. John says some, yes, fall away from the faith, but they were never really in the faith. They were never really a part of the flock. And second, we are warned of apostasy in the scriptures on multiple occasions. And so we build our doctrine or we do our best to. We all have blind spots. You guys know that. There, I know that there are blind spots in my doctrine. I do my best to build my doctrine off the entire revelation of Scripture. The problem with that is that I'm still learning it, right? Like I'm reading it every day and learning. The Scriptures also warn us of apostasy from time to time. They say that we should, we should not just live in open sin and say, God is gracious so I can do whatever I want to do. They say that when we do that, there does seem to be something that happens in our heart and apostasy seems to be a possibility. Jude warns us of it. Peter warns us of it. It does seem like apostasy is a thing. So, no, I don't believe in once saved, always saved, in the sense that I think there are a lot of people in the church who hang out but have not really been born again. And I also think that there may be on very rare occasions, I say this with words that have meaning, on very rare occasions, I do think that apostasy may be a thing. But for the very vast, large majority of us, the conviction is this. That even in our seasons of messiness, even when I'm tangled in sin and I know I'm tangled in sin and I need to get out. And when I'm making dumb decisions and I'm confused, sometimes we are just spiritually confused. We can't make sense of our own mess. Even in those seasons, God is still working in me. Some of you this morning feel like you have made some dumb decisions. And I would say to you, you probably have along with the rest of us. Some of you feel like you've made such bad decisions that God couldn't possibly love you anymore. And I'm telling you this morning that God is a shepherd man. He knows that sheep do dumb things. He has committed himself to see you through to the end. The blood of Jesus was a covenant for you. I'm telling you that even in your seasons where you feel like God may have quit, God may just be allowing you to experience the consequences of your own bad decisions. But he has not quit on you. The scriptures say that a righteous man falls seven times and he gets his righteous butt back up. I added the butt part for the record. That was purely here. So if your kids are straying this morning and you're sure my kid gave their life to Jesus, there was a confession of faith and they really love God, but they're tangled in sin. Rest in the truth that God is at work in them. God has not quit on them. Rest. Take a deep breath. With Paul, pray. Follow the leading of the shepherd's voice. So if God tells you to pick up the phone and call and have a conversation, pick up and have a conversation. If God, you feel like God's nudging you today just to pray and not to be overly assertive, just pray. Trust the shepherd. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. 
Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.